0: Tonight we want to focus our attention upon Jonah chapter 1. Here the spotlight is upon the prodigal prophet. And I want you to see him in a threefold relationship. First of all, his relationship to Jehovah. Secondly, his relationship to the pagan sailors, and thirdly, his relationship to the fish. Whenever you study the Word of God, try to develop a working outline. Get a collection of key words that will bring back for you the essential content. And I've come up with three words that bring back this chapter to me. The chapter breaks open into three closely linked paragraphs. In verses 1 through 3, Jonah is disobedient. In verses 4 through 14, he is discovered. And in verses 15 through 17, he is discarded. But I want you to note something very significant about that last paragraph. Jonah is discarded by men, but not by God. They threw him out. God picked him up. Now, let's look at the first paragraph, Jonah's relationship to the Lord, verses 1 and 3 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. There are three verbs, each of them an imperative. Go, arise, go, and cry. Bear in mind when you study the Word of God that the verbs are the action words. And in those three verbs, you have a summarization of the will of God for Jonah's life. It's his great commission. God is giving the prophet directions. And Jonah is not left to wonder, what does God want me to do? Now, the interesting thing is that God calls this prophet to go to Nineveh, one of the great cities of the ancient world. You see, God Is always interested in cities. Are you? You know what the motto of the average Christian is? Somewhere out in the West we'll build a little nest and let the rest of the world go to hell. That's diametrically opposed The heart of God. God is building a city. Abraham looked for a city. Jesus wept over a city. And the Apostle Paul always headed for the city. I've just come from the eastern United States, Baltimore, Washington. Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. And I must confess my heart is crucified tonight. Probably the greatest concentration of people in these United States, and they're going to hell on a skateboard. And in every one of these metropolitan areas, it is becoming increasingly more difficult to find an evangelical witness for Jesus Christ. The evangelicals have abandoned the cities. It always intrigues me when I come to the Word of God, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, How prominent, how heavy on God's heart is the city. Now, Jonah had to walk there. He couldn't catch a greyhound and leave the driving to them. Couldn't ride the friendly skies of United. Nineveh was located approximately 500 miles northeast of where he was located. Nineveh is located over on the Tigris River in the metropolitan, I mean, in the Mesopotamian Valley. It's a long trip, but that's not what bothered him. It's not the distance, it's the direction. The place was his problem. And he's told to preach a message against it, which we will study later. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now I want you to note in the latter part of verse 2, we are given the reason why Nineveh is singled out. It's because of their wickedness, and it has come up before me. Now, there are three evidences that I would like to share with you from historical and archaeological evidence that throw a great deal of light on this very general statement. There are three things we know about the Assyrians. Nineveh was its capital. First, we know that it was a center for a fertility cult. They were guilty of unspeakable practices. I couldn't share with you in this audience the material that I have read concerning this cult. They were licentious. They were debauched beyond description. And nothing in contemporary society begins to compare with the degradation of Nineveh. They were famous for their filth. A dubious distinction indeed. Immorality was rampant. And that ascended to God. He saw it. And still does. Secondly, the Assyrians were known for their child sacrifice. They built massive metal idol the idols hands were folded in this fashion before them and in the space was a massive bowl in which they built intense fires and mothers would come with their newborn infants and would take them and throw them up into the midst of the fire And in order to drown out the screaming, dying babies, the prophets and the prophetesses would chant and sing this monotonous song. And God said, that disturbs me. Third, They were known for their cruelty in warfare, for their inhumane treatment of prisoners of war. Just a few weeks ago, I was reading one of the inscriptions. A king issued the order that all the captives in this particular campaign were to be skinned alive and their bodies were to be impaled upon poles, and they were to be left out in the hot sun to die. Now they included these in their inscriptions because they were proud of that. We know Nazi Germany's gas oven. We know of the atrocities in Korea and Vietnam, and some of us know them too well, but nothing in military history, in the contemporary scene, even begins to compare with the cruelty of the Assyrians. So the Assyrians were a wicked, inhumane, depraved, cruel, generate, immoral society. And God purposed to do something about it. Do you ever have somebody ask you, why doesn't God do something? Well, my friend, he is doing something. And the next time he speaks, he will speak in judgment. You see, his present silence is significant. It's a mark of his grace that he's not willing that any should perish. And when you come out of these eastern cities, you are prone to think as a human being, man, why don't we bring a collection of bulldozers and wipe this stuff out and push it into the sea? This is your natural human reaction to this kind of devastation. But God always intervenes. He takes note of what nations are doing. He takes note of what's going on in the cities today. Centers of vice and corruption. I think the most remarkable thing about this statement is that although the Ninevites were not at all interested in God, God, was tremendously interested in the Ninevites. And what a message that speaks to our heart. So in direct, specific, plain language, Jonah is told to go. He heard the Word of God, he understood the Word of God, but he didn't like it. And I've often been asked, You know, is it possible to rebel against the will of God? Certainly it is. It's possible, even though it's ridiculous. Is it possible to know the will of God and not to do it? We do it all the time. Knowledge of the will of God is no guarantee that one will do it. God said go. Jonah said no. I'm not going there. He has a claim to fame. He's the only prophet of the Old Testament who after receiving his call said no. (laughs) Dubious distinction. So he went down, I'm sorry, beginning of verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Where in the world is Tarshish? Well, it's probably located in southern Spain. It was made famous by the Phoenicians who used it as a trade center. That's precisely 2,000 miles to the west. And at least in terms of that world, it would be impossible to get any further from Nineveh. 500 miles northeast, he goes 2,000 miles Directly west. Buys a one way ticket. That's not in the text. <laughs> if he bought a round trip, he certainly got hooked. <laughs> so he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarships, paid the fare. Went down into it to go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Will you notice twice in this verse and again in verse ten from the presence of the Lord? This is probably a technical expression, which means to voluntarily forfeit one's prophetic responsibility. The pagans read it that way, as I will show you. In a moment so here's the boy goes down and he's frantically looking for something going to Tarshish now they weren't leaving for Tarshish in those days every hour on the hour it wasn't like O'Hare field where every 30 seconds something's leaving for somewhere it was really amazing that he found a bookie. And I suppose he thought, how providential. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how often you can be out of the will of God and the circumstances are absolutely perfect. you know, God's in it. No. Don't blame him. Now, look at verse 4. Here we come to the second part of this chapter, and that's his relationship with the sailors. Verse 4 should begin with a but. And if your Bible does not have one, put one in. It belongs there. It's a very sharp, contrast. It's a contrast between the but which begins verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee, but the Lord sent a great wind. You see, Jonah is fleeing, but Jehovah is following. Jonah's running, and God's chasing after him. Your Bible may say say sent. The Hebrew word is hurl, and the Holy Spirit wants you to know that this storm that burst upon the Mediterranean Sea came from the hand of God. This isn't an, an accident. The great wind produced the great storm. But it's sourced in God. See, it's one thing to have the boat in the water. It's another thing to have the water in the boat. (laughs) And it was so bad that it was about to break up. In fact, it struck terror in the heart of professional sailors. Then the sailors became afraid. See, these were not seminary students. (laughs) These were Phoenician sailors, pagans, every one of them with a different god. Amazing how people get religious in a crisis. I was coming in to Panama City, and I think the worst storm I've ever been in. I have never seen it so bad. I mean, man, we were dropping so far, I didn't know if we were going to make it. And the interesting thing was there was a guy next to me with some kind of religious equipment. And I mean, man, every time that thing would lurch, he would...
1: <laughs>
0: Then it would calm down for a while and he'd get relaxed. And then we'd get another... <laughs> and his mouth was moving like crazy. When we hit the runway, he just cut loose with a collection of oaths you have never heard. Well, these boys got religious. Every man cried to his God. They threw the cargo which was in the ship and the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship. You notice how many times that little word occurs? Every time you move away from the will of God, you're going down. And he's gone down into the hold of the ship, laid down and fallen sound asleep. And people have often said to me, you got to be kidding. How in the world could a guy do that? Out of the will of God. It's simple. You can sleep like a baby out of the will of God. You know why? Because there is a desensitization process that takes place. You want to know how close you are to the Lord? What's your sensitivity to sin? still shake you up? Or are you pretty cavalier about it? You know,
1: hmm, it's
0: the way it is today. never ceases to amaze me how many Christians can go and see pornographic films and it never tears them up on the inside. See, that's telling you more than you want to hear. One of the characteristics of holiness is that your heart has a revulsion to sin but not when you are persistently moving away from the will of God. Then your heart becomes like your skin. There are degrees of burns. You get a first degree burn, and I mean it hurts. You get a second degree burn, and it may hurt. You get a third degree burn, it doesn't hurt at all. Because by then, all of the nerve endings, have been damaged. That's exactly what happens in the spiritual realm. I don't think I could have gone to sleep in a situation like this. Man, I would have been, you know, riding the rail. Here we are in the midst of this tremendous storm and he's out like a light. Well, in verse 6, the captain discovers him. Captain approaches him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up! I think he probably got him and shook him by the shoulders, brought him up on a deck and says, Man, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Our gods aren't doing anything. So maybe yours can bail us out. Get with it. But even his praying didn't do too much. So in verse 7, Each man said to his maid, Come, let's cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. You turn back to the book of Proverbs chapter 16 for just a moment. Very interesting verse. Proverbs 16 and verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You know what that passage says? Men roll the dice, but God makes the spots. Come up. You get the picture? This guy staggers out of the hole, probably still under anesthesia meets this desperate group of sailors. Bolts falling apart, pitching on every side, waves coming over the side of it. And the interesting thing is, in verse 8, they hurl a series of questions at him in rapid fire, one, then another. Then they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What's your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah tells him he's a prophet. Oh, they say, man, that's the problem. This is a non-profit organization. (laughs) Some of you are still looking in your text there. Joan answers very frankly, very courageously. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Man, that must have said something to them. That's quite a sermon. He made the sea. That's the one we need. (laughs) He made the dry land. Man, do we need a piece of that. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to them, How could you do this? Will you mark the reaction of a collection of pagans? I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but pagans' expectations of believers are sometimes far higher than the ones we have of ourselves. You don't believe it. Wait till the next time you're down at the office and you blow one. You know, and you cut loose and hit the fan and all of the rest of it. Everybody's standing around like this, looking at you. You know, and then finally you look at them and they're, Well, wow. <laughs> hi, deacon. <laughs> what well, I'll never let you forget that day, right? You see, many times pagans have more insights than believers do. Look what they say to him. How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. He told them he was turning in his prophet's badge. And he said, you gotta be kidding. Do you mean to tell me that you are related to the living God? That's what he just told them. And you're acting like that? So they said to him, what shall we do for you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. It's intensifying. And he said, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Now, you know, that raises an interesting question. Why didn't he jump into it? (laughs) See, it was a desperate situation. But Jonah never contemplates suicide. It's interesting, in chapter 4, he'll ask God to take his life, but he never takes that prerogative into his own hand. He was content to accept death at the hands of the sailors, and if they threw him over and he drowned, he knew he deserved it. It would be at the hand of God, but at least he wouldn't have to go to Nineveh. Then the sea, he says, will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. You ever ask yourself what grief do you cause pagans by being out of the will of God? And in verse 13, I think these pagans come to their highest point. It just amazes me sometimes to see what pagans will do. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. The Hebrew says they dug the oars in deeper, roared harder. They're desperately concerned to save this man. Ladies and gentlemen, the pagans were more concerned for Nineveh than—I mean, for Jonah than Jonah was for the pagans. How's that grab you? So then they called on the Lord. We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us. In other words, they're praying, don't hold us guilty for his murder. For thou, O Lord, has done as thou hast pleased. Now, in verses 15... And following, we come to Jonah and the fish. He's discarded. If you pleased, he's dumped. And verse 15 says, So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. You know what that's trying to tell you? That's telling you that this is another Supernatural component. Please note, he doesn't say the storm stopped. He says the sea stopped. You don't have to be very brilliant or even that experienced to know that when the storm stops on a sea, the sea does not stop. It's agitated for a long period of time thereafter. This is a supernatural working of God. So in verse 16, they did three things. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. First. Secondly, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And third, they made vows. my judgment, they were clearly converted to the true God. And so Jonah, in spite of himself, was used to carry the message of Jehovah to the heathen. He didn't want to do it in Nineveh. But in Ruth, he's instrumental in reaching the sailors. I'll leave you with a principle at this point. I hope you never forget it. You know what this passage tells you? It tells you that the message is more important than the messenger. Here's a man who's out of the will of God by his own testimony. And yet he becomes an instrument in the hands of God. Do you ever have this experience? If you haven't, you will. Do you ever see some choice servant of Jesus Christ get shot down in flames? And when the news finally comes out, he was living in sin for a considerable period of time. Preaching the Word. One of my closest friends, preaching the Word. I'll never forget the last night he preached the Word in his church when he walked out to go out to meet the girl with whom he was living out a marriage. And 12 people found the Savior that night. You walk out of this kind of experience and you say, wait a minute, man. You know, how could this happen? you got fresh evidence that God honors His Word. I think every Christian at some time in his Christian life has to experience that firsthand. He has to have somebody on whom he's placing all of his trust crash and burn. So that he comes to grips with the fact, look, that's not the object of your faith. Jesus Christ is. And he never fails. See, the best of servants, the Lord says, are just unprofitable. And one of the problems is some of you dear people put them on too high a pedestal. That's what creates the problem. We've got so many hero worshipers in the Christian community that you get some guy and, boy, you start cranking that thing up. Well, my friend, the higher you crank it, the farther he's got to come when he comes off of there. See, if you're on the ground and you fall, you don't have very far to go. But man, if you got him up at the top of that beam and he's coming down, he's going to knock his noggin. It's going to be a great crash down here. That's why I think one of the greatest sins of the laity today is their worshiping of human instruments. And their glorifying of names. Man, this thing disturbs me. Because we're just back in the Corinthian church. All we've done is change the names, that's all. But the sin is exactly the same. Now, look at verse 15. See, up till now, our attention has been focused on the sailors. Meanwhile, back in the sea, what about Jonah? Well, God didn't forget him. He didn't abandon him. Verse 17 says, And the Lord prepared, a better translation is, He appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. We are not to understand here that God created a fish on the spot for this occasion. But rather, a sovereign God who controls all of His creatures has one available with perfect timing. The submarine, to pick him up, never cost him fare, (laughs) deposits him back on dry land. Jonah was in the stomach of that fish three days, three nights. Tomorrow night, I'm going to answer some questions. Do you think it's possible to live that long in a fish? Do you think there is a fish that could do that? (laughs) You never caught one in your fishing trip? (laughs) Some interesting insights I picked up in the Whaling Museum in Norway. I'll share with you if you'll come back. (laughs) I'm going to ask and answer one question. Why did this happen? What did God purpose in this bizarre event? See, we get so preoccupied with a fish that we miss the real concern. That's the prophet. Well, the Lord was doing three things with the prophet. And I suggest he's doing the same three with you. You ready? Number one, God was disciplining his prophet. See, he's learning that God is a God who disciplines. I'm so glad he does. Aren't you? Okay, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. God is a great disciplinarian. In Hebrews chapter 12, you have God's woodshed. Verse 3, the writer says, "...for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord." Nor faint when you are reproved of him. For those whom God loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The only time that could be answered differently is in the 20th century. Every time I have an opportunity, I rise up to thank God for my father. My father contributed nothing to me spiritually for one obvious reason. He had nothing to give me. But every major asset I have in my ministry today... I owe to my father who, until the last four months of his life, was an unbeliever. My father disciplined me. He was a military man, he laid down stripes and I saw stars. <laughs> I can remember every whipping my father gave me. I can never remember once turning around and saying, Boy, Dad, thanks a lot for that fresh evidence of your love. (laughs) But you see, I sit across the desk from students at the seminary who are resplendently gifted. Got everything in the world except one thing. Discipline. They can't get their act together. And I've had students say to me, you know, Prof, I'd give my right arm if I had your discipline. And I always have to pause to praise God. I got it from an unregenerate father. But he loved me. And I'm here to say to you, men and women who are parents, if you do not discipline your children, you do not love them. Period. And if you love them, you will discipline. Do you think that you are a better father than God Almighty? When the Scripture says, Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. But, verse 8, If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children. And not sons. In other words, discipline is a proof of sonship. You don't whip the kids next door. (laughs) You wish you could. (laughs) (laughs) Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Every time I hear kids talk about their father, I just break out in a cold sweat. I am compelled by the grace of God to say the highest words of respect for my father. As I told you, he didn't know straight up spiritual. I'll never forget when he threw his arms around me. Last time I saw him on the earth and he said, Oh, son, thank you. Thank you so much for introducing me to Jesus Christ. I'm so sorry I didn't listen to you earlier. And I said, Thanks, Dad for what you gave to me. And God used you in a tremendous way. Some of you dear people have no idea of how God is using you right now with those kids you got. Now, I'm not talking about whipping the tar out of them. So some of you go and say, all right, fine, that's good. I got the message. No, 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 no. That's got to take place in a context of building a relationship. The interesting thing is, my father really whipped me very, very few times. Mostly because we had such a tremendous relationship going that I'd knocked myself out to please my dad. And I can still remember many times having my dad say, Son, It's good, but it's not worthy of Hendrix, is it? He'd come right up out of the woodwork. See, but now um, anything's good enough. Especially for God. Well, that's too convicting. Let's get back in. Ten. For they disciplined us for a short time as seen best to them. And let's face it, all of us have human parents. And human parents have the characteristics of humans. That's sinfulness. So we're not talking about anybody that's perfect here. They did it as seen best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. That we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. I want you to see a very sobering passage of Scripture. The Word of God teaches that there is a sin unto death. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in connection with the Lord's table, we are given some very profound and sobering instruction. Paul has said, I don't want you to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I don't want you to do it without examining yourself. And then in verse 30, he says this. Underline this in your Bible. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That's the sin unto death spelled out in its process. Weakness, sickness, death. Now, don't ever conclude that all sickness is for this reason. But sometimes, God has to strike us with weakness. God has to bring sickness into our life. And if you persist out of the will of God, He may take you home. But he adds, verse 31, if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Please note, we are talking about deliberate, persistent disobedience. By the way, it's a very important thing for you to learn with your children. Never, never discipline a child for making a mistake. Never discipline a child who in his excitement telling you what's going on, hits the glass of milk and it goes all over your nice floor. But if you say to your son, son, don't knock the glass over, no. And he looks at you in the glass and at you in the glass and then goes, BAM! <laughs> then you move into action. <laughs> That's what Jonah did. Arise, go, Cry. Where? Nineveh. And he goes in the opposite direction. C.S. So, yes, Lewis has a beautiful statement in his book, The Problem of Pain. I hope you have read that. In fact, I hope you've read a lot of Lewis. He says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts to us in our pain. It's God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. So stop asking, why does God allow this to come into your life? Ask yourself, what are you trying to do? to teach me. Secondly, not only is God disciplining His prophet, but He's preserving His prophet. It's a statement in the Psalms that my wife and I quote to each other over and over again. It's, He redeemeth thy life from destruction. When's the last time you thanked Him for that? Do you ever thank God for deliverance from the uselessness that your life could have been? Do you ever bump into any people in your society on their way to hell and come to grips, I mean the terrible grips, of the emptiness of their life and they run to another bottle, to another event, to another something getting on a plane with a lawyer friend of mine in Dallas some time ago and I was very critical of a woman who was so intoxicated I was amazed they put her on the plane. And he whipped around and said to me, you have no idea of what she may be going through. And if you didn't know Christ, Holly, maybe that's the only resource you could use. And I crawled back into my little hole. See, that's why I say to people, don't take away the anesthetic of your neighbor who's trying to deaden the pain of an empty life. See, if you were not going to heaven, what would you live for? The problem, at least in my experience, is that all too frequently I'm living for the same things these people are living for. And I'm headed for an altogether different destination. This man was discarded by the sailors, but not by God. See, God's not through with him. You're out somewhere in the Mediterranean where we don't know, but obviously unless God had preserved this man, he would have drowned. God was still determined that Jonah was going to carry his message to Nineveh. Now, don't ask me to explain that either. Because, you know, given my approach, I'd say, you know, finish. Waterless grave, you know, right there, that's it. Okay, we got prophets running all over the place looking for a job. <laughs> we'll send somebody else. Aren't you glad God doesn't deal with you that way? He must have been wiped out so many years ago. Hey, God said, hey, you finish. <laughs> Next. So this was God's way of preserving the prophet, providing transportation, getting him going in the right direction again. Choice illustration of this is in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19 from the life of Elijah. I love to study these men and women in the Old Testament. Do you? They so turned me on. Here's old Elijah, 850 to 1. Man, that, that's a horseradish man if I ever saw one. Here he is on the top of Carnal, taking him on single handedly. Hey Amen. They're going through all their gyrations and cutting their wrists and crying out. And old Elijah sitting on the sidelines. That's hey, call a little louder. You know, maybe he's asleep. You better wake him up. Maybe his battery's out on the hearing aid, you know. Finally, the whole thing is broken down. And they say, all right, now it's your turn. And I see, they say, hey, you know, we didn't do so well. Well, Let's see what you do. And remember, they were worshipers of the the fire god. And if there's anything a fire god ought to be able to do, it's light a fire. (laughs) So why would you praise that? Incredibly simple prayer. He'd never made a good preacher on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and a fire falls, and man, it consumes the sacrifice, consumes the water and the stones. How's that grab you? See, i been I've been camping a lot of time, and I've discovered stones do not make good kindling. <laughs> So they have this tremendous victory. Then in chapter 19, old Ahab comes home, slips in the door, tries to get in without Jezebel hearing him. And then he's got to break the news to her. And with all, they've slain the prophets of Baal. She said, you got to be kidding. I'm going to get that guy. And the moment he hears that, he hot-foots it. 125 miles south. That's putting quite a distance between yourself and his gal. Now, mind you, he takes on 850 to 1. And one woman says, I'm going to get you, and he gets. <laughs> if you knew Jezebel, you'd know why he got. <laughs> he goes down there and he falls asleep from sheer exhaustion. And twice, the angel comes along and wakes him up. He's got a little meal prepared for him. Tells him, hey, eat. <clears throat> All right. He eats. No sooner does he get to the meal, bong, out he goes again. Again, he wakes him up. And the interesting thing is there's a little statement in that text that's tremendous. You better eat and get some strength because the journey is too great for you. He's still got 250 miles yet to go to Horeb. What journey? Why, a journey out of the will of God. My friend, you may be out of the will of God, but you are never out of the concern of God. Neither was Jonah. Third And last, God was preparing His messenger. He's not only disciplining His prophet, He's not only preserving His prophet, He's also preparing His prophet for His future ministry to Nineveh. You see, one of the gods that they worshipped in Nineveh was Dagon, D-A-G-O-N, the fish god. The Assyrians believed, as did the Phoenicians, that Dagon came up out of the sea. And the messengers of Dagon always emanated from the sea. So if Jonah came from that source, you can imagine what an impact he would have on that city. And this may account for the tremendous, almost phenomenal results that he had. In addition to the fact, as I will show you later, that he probably suffered from skin discoloration and therefore may have been something of a phenomenon <laughs> and would have been proof that he came out of the sea. Well, we're going to have to leave John in the belly of the fish till tomorrow night, but he's going to be all right. There are two abiding truths in chapter 1 I want to leave with you. Number one, when the Lord calls you to do something, don't fear the consequences. You leave the consequences with the Lord. The outcome is not your problem. Obedience is. Not the results, but your response. I'm running into a lot of young people. I'm running into a lot of laymen who are somehow fed up with the setup and who believe that God has something more for their life than they ever dreamed. just met a dentist back in Boston who told me that about a year ago he made a decision to reduce his practice to four days a week in order to give the rest of his time to two things, his family and discipling. He came up after and he just about broke down telling me what God has done in his life. He said, I'm making more now than I ever used to make when I was working seven days a week. And he said, I get a greater ministry. And he said, I've just come to the place where I say, man, Lord, let's whack it down to three. I don't need this much to live on. Do you ever ask yourself how much you need to live on? See, the motto of our society is how high can you get? Instead of how little do you need to live on and how much can you release? Because, you know, so you do amass the whole shot. I got people all over the Dallas community. They got more money than you ever thought I had. And you are also some of the most miserable people in the world trying to find how can I get some fulfillment in the last couple years of my life? And I would say to you as a young person or to you as a businessman or a woman that if you feel God is calling you to do something, you better get on with it. Because it's been my experience through the years in ministry, God will never be your debtor. He will never hang you. And if he calls you to do something, he's got all of the resources with which to pull it off. Even if he's got to move a sea monster, he'll have them there on location. <laughs> the second thing they want to leave with you is if you disobey God and try to run away, he'll come after you. He will pursue you relentlessly because He loves you with an everlasting love. So the next time you're running away from God and you feel a hot breath (laughs) over your shoulder, don't be surprised that when you turn around you look into the face of a loving God, the hound of heaven, who's going to chase you down and draw you to himself remember he could have left Jonah out in the middle of the Mediterranean without even a gravestone but he brought him all the way back so he could have a piece of the action and share This tremendous task of bringing God's message to this pagan society. Let's pray. Our Father, sometimes we find that this is too much for us. And we need to go off by ourselves frequently and sit down and let it all percolate through our minds, and grip our hearts. Some of us have been so cauterized by the world that we're half insensitive. And it takes a rather substantial jolt to get our attention. And our Father, we thank you that you are patient, you're faithful, you're loving, you're gracious. and You work in a world...